0: My name is Lisa Cook, and I'm the GRC Job Practice Principal at Isaca. Welcome to another Isaca podcast. I have with me here Kane McGladdery from Hyperproof. Hi, Kane.
1: How are you? I'm great, Lisa. Thanks for having me on. How are you today?
0: I'm doing great, and thanks for joining us. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to ask you if you wouldn't mind giving a little background on yourself for our listening audience.
1: Sure. So I am the field CISO at HyperProof, and I am a 25-year veteran of the cybersecurity industry. So um, even though if you were to check my Twitter profile or my LinkedIn, you'd see I post an inordinate number of cat GIFs up there. Uh, I actually have been a CISO at a defense industrial based company. I've run worldwide professional services for a cybersecurity company. I've done executive advisory on uh, three continents now with Fortune 500 global 1,000 businesses, uh, and I still get excited about uh, the opportunity to serve the public and to help private companies to protect their debtor.
0: Okay. Well, that's quite the resume. Thanks for sharing. Well, let's go ahead and get started. What we're going to be talking about today really is the survey that your organization does on, on a yearly basis. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, and then we'll jump into some questions?
1: Well, uh, Sure. I'll start by talking about the methodology for the survey. So our survey was conducted from December 2022 to January of 2023. And uh, even though I'll be covering the high points here, the full stats are available in the downloadable report. We surveyed uh, 1,010 total people. Two thirds of them were from technology companies. A quarter were from tech forward manufacturers. Four percent were from health tech and four percent were from automotive companies. 47% 47% of the companies were in business between 3 and 10 years. 33% of the companies surveyed were um, large organizations that earned between $100 million to $500 million in 2022. 25% of the companies surveyed earned more than a $1 billion in 2022. And respondents could select up to three job functions. So when they were prompted, 60% of respondents reported their primary job function was information technology. 59% were information security, and 51% were from IT audit or IT compliance. So it was a really well-rounded mix of companies in the United States and in the United Kingdom.
0: Excellent, excellent. And the survey is the 2023 IT Compliance and Risk Benchmark Report, correct? That's right, yes. Okay, so what were the most important themes that emerged from that data?
1: Well, there's a lot of them, so I'll, I'll try and try and summarize this. Um, First, we found the relationship between the C-suite and information security professionals is changing. Um, Eighty-five percent of respondents say that their company has a board member with cybersecurity expertise, and a third of respondents made changes to how legal teams work with CISOs because of the the Joe Sullivan and the Uber verdict. Second, uh, we found the struggle to unify risk and compliance management really persists. Um, 51% of respondents struggled with identifying critical risks to prioritize remediations. And even though 57% of respondents believe that having a strong compliance program helps to mitigate risks, only 10% of them have an integrated view of risks and have aligned their risk and compliance activities. A third of the respondents said most of their time is spent on manual or administrative tasks, too. And finally, we found that changes in the market are resulting in new purchase patterns and a surprising increase in budget. Uh, 63% of all respondents anticipated spending more money on IT risk compliance and ma- risk management in 2023, and 70% of the respondents planned to grow their compliance team over the next two years. Now, remember, that was even with uh, at the end of 2022, beginning of 2023, Uh, economists still weren't sure, and I still don't know if we are sure uh, if we are in a recession, if we just had a recession, or if the recession is just around the bend, uh, but there was that level of optimism about spending and investment in this space.
0: Excellent. Are there any other notable trends that uh, you saw there?
1: Um, I think we might get into one of the larger themes, but not any individual trends. Okay, sounds good. What were the five
0: most important statistics that emerged from the survey results?
1: Well, beyond what we just talked about, um, we did come, uncover some additional notable findings, and they're all kind of connected thematically. So here's the first step. 93% of the respondents uh, feel they've done well in identifying and in assessing risks, but the actual results of their processes and their actions don't end up aligning with this high confidence. Uh, The second and the third most stats directly follow. uh, 39% of all respondents said that they struggle with finding risk-related information when they need it, and 38% admitted Uh, that they have to switch between multiple systems throughout the risk management process and that they've got separate locations and places for uh, risk assessments versus tracking remediation efforts like um, multiple spreadsheets containing risk assessment results or multiple platforms tracking risk Um, and the fourth most important stat and i am not in any means saying this is causality but it looks like a potential correlation. We found that 50% of those companies that were managing risk ad hoc or in siloed departments experienced a breach in 2022. And finally, that brings me to my fifth stat. By comparison, uh, we found 30% of companies with an integrated approach and automated tools experienced breaches. Uh, So, that 20% delta is something that we're going to be exploring in the future, because for a lot of companies that is a substantial reduction of risk and it also is potential savings when you think about the costs of insurance policies or, goodness help you, incident response and then Pending litigation and uh, attorney's fees and then potential penalties from any of those activities stemming from breach. So being able to make that large of a difference by having an integrated view of risk uh, is definitely worth exploring. And in our next study, we'll be looking into that further.
0: Excellent. Excellent. We're seeing a big change this year in the relationship between C-suite and information security professionals. What do you think the impact will be? How will information security professionals need to change and adopt their processes?
1: That definitely aligns with the findings in the report. Uh, The C-suite and information security professionals are really working more closely together than ever. I don't want to oversimplify here, but the impact is going to depend on the size of the organization and if the CISO reports to the CEO. Uh, Multiple studies, um, not just us, but multiple studies have shown that CISOs who report to the CEO can have a meaningful conversation about business risk and about executive, and they can get executive alignment. By comparison, those CISOs who don't, who maybe they just report to the CIO or maybe they're just functionally a director, we found they're building their security programs around compliance because they can use it like a a blunt tool to encourage at least a minimum of security. But I think everyone here knows that compliance just isn't security. We've also seen that market regulators like the SEC and the FTC are leaning really hard into enforcement actions rather than just sanctions, and they're also getting really prescriptive in terms of the behaviors they want to see. So we're all going to be dealing with a lot more regulations, but keep in mind, the the way we can get future regulations in the future is if we all level up our security processes to reduce that future oversight. Because the regulators today think they're systemic and persistent failures. So by showing that we're all doing a, a reasonable cybersecurity controls, we can probably reduce the extent and um, the risk of actual future audit regimes.
0: Excellent, excellent. Another question for you. Why is confidence in respondents' ability to manage risks so high when the results don't align?
1: You know, that is... That is one of the more surprising findings out of the study. We were hoping that, you know, with that high degree of confidence that people would be able to justify it. But what we found was that identifying and prioritizing critical risks is far and away considered to be the most time consuming activity relating to managing security and data privacy risks. And that problem's at least partially caused by respondents not having the right data at their fingertips. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, 38% of respondents admitted that they have to switch between multiple systems throughout the risk management process, and they've got separate places for risk assessments versus risk remediation efforts. Uh, We further learned that only 10% of respondents have an integrated view of risks and have aligned their risk and compliance activities. So even though we found that spreadsheet use had massively fallen in our survey Uh, the data point indicates the overwhelming majority of surveys are still struggling to align their risk and compliance activities even with a tool in place and that's a lot of time spent pivoting looking up data, and, and moving between siloed systems. And those manual activities are limiting an organization's abilities to understand their true risk and compliance stance. So in a fashion, it's actually the lack of an integrated view on risk in itself has become a risk.
0: That's very interesting. You know, it also puts me in the mind of uh, when you talked about earlier the security breaches and how organizations are very concerned about that. It seems like there's also a correlation between organizations managing compliance and risk data in silos uh, and the number of security breaches those organizations experience. What should we make of that?
1: Um, I think that it's... I I think we no longer can have this magical silo of cyber risk be different than business risk. And here's why. If you have an organization, let's say you have a manufacturing organization, and let's say that manufacturing organization has a ransomware attack, and the ransomware attack takes out their manufacturing capabilities for a duration of time. Let's say by comparison, they have a tornado that takes out their manufacturing capabilities capacity for a period of time. Now, both of those lead to the exact same outcome. You don't have manufacturing capacity for a short amount of time or a long amount of time and the supply chain's gonna suck and everybody's gonna be unhappy, irrespective of how that risk actually came to fruition. So this disparate view that risk, cyber risk is different because, I don't know, because computers, Um, that just no longer really makes a material level of business sense and i think that the market regulators as well for those publicly traded companies are now really looking into that even more so in critical infrastructure industries
0: another question for you what's the outlook for 2023
1: well we're going to see more regulation Um, we're going to see an emphasis on audits and on internal assessments and we're going to really see a more complicated business-to-business sales cycle as companies demand more and more proof of security as part of risk management conversations and vendor risk management activities. Uh, Having said that, I do think that the companies that are more proactive in this space, that don't just go in for compliance, but actually lean into the intent of security, those companies are going to have a competitive advantage as well as potentially lower cyber insurance premiums. Because if you think about it, if you have an integrated view of your risks and you can see how effectively you're burning down each one of your risks, a company can then identify which of those risks they don't need to move to insurance, they don't need to transfer, and instead can only focus on those risks that they do need to transfer to insurance instead of asking for cyber insurance policies based on an incomplete understanding of their overall risk profile. I think the other thing we're seeing is that even in this macroeconomic climate, that technology for compliance is a need to have, not just a nice to have, because it can help reduce the amount of time companies spend preparing for internal and external audits. And at the same time, uh, that gives information security professionals a better, more holistic view of their security compliance posture, which really makes it easier to mitigate risks. and. The last thing I think will happen this year is that anxiety around cyber threats is going to continue to be very high, and the need to quickly adapt to additional changing regulations is going to be persistent throughout the year. So, as regulators pile on the pressure, um, organizations are being pushed to respond by increasing their headcount or diversifying their tech stack by using additional cloud-based software, and the amount of work that they're going to have to consider uh, outsourcing to mitigate those new and compliance burdens might change throughout the year as well.
0: Okay, great, great. Now, you talked a lot about regulations. Can you touch on maybe one or two of where we see those regulatory winds blowing?
1: So, I can think of the GLBA Um, is probably the most interesting one for me right now. The SEC, of course, has done some fun things. But I think of GLBA because there's a little, uh, there's a strip mall a couple miles from where I live. And it has a paint store. It has a BevMo. Um, BevMo is a, a... liquor store, they also have nice cheeses, and it has a, a used furniture store, and the used furniture store is a chain, and at that used furniture store, you can get a loan for your used furniture if you can't afford to buy you know, a couch, or I think they also lease things. Under GLBA's new safeguards rule, which is coming into effect in June of this year, that company, because it's a chain, is going to have to have a cybersecurity program. And the whole thing I think of is just kind of the vibe of that area doesn't make me think they're going to have a top-notch cybersecurity program in addition to just doing PCI compliance. But under GLBA, they're going to be required to, and not only required to have a program. They have to have somebody to operate it, they have to have somebody to be responsible for it, they have to periodically assess it, and they have to report on it to the owners or to the board of directors of that company. And this is going to affect, um, it was supposed to go in in December of last year, It didn't go real well because I think there was a communications disconnect between the people who are suddenly going to find themselves as regulated and those folks who um, want to do the regulating. Or another good example is uh, Whatcom Community College, just near where I live, actually. And again, because they offer loans, student loans, they're also going to be covered. Now, that's on the kind of on the smaller side. If you look at the SEC, they're going to start requiring that companies disclose via their 8K who on the board has cybersecurity expertise and one of the most interesting questions in that is going to be how will the market react if a company that has somebody who has cybersecurity expertise on their board has a breach or they have a material incident are they going to be held to a different standard and similarly How are institutional investors going to treat those companies that don't have someone with cybersecurity expertise on the board? Is that going to be seen as a material concern or a risk associated with that company that they couldn't find somebody who has cybersecurity expertise? Uh, The bit of advice I give to CISOs that I talk to is (laughs) later this year, go start reading your 8K if you don't know who the person is in the room who's got cybersecurity expertise, because that's going to be the person who you want to go have coffee with uh, later this year.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and you—you you know there are a lot. There's a lot of different things going on, right? We even have volatility in the economy, or perhaps you know, recession looming potentially. Um, from the survey results, can you talk to us a little bit about how the peers, you know, the peer groups are handling compliance and audit management, risk management, uh, in the midst of all of this volatility?
1: Um, so it it really does vary from company to company i think that the the place companies want to get to is to reduce organizational tension between audit and security, because there's been this historical belief that you know the security people, you know they're responsible for operating the security controls and they've got 110 billion things to do and when audit shows up and says, hey, can I have a screenshot of this tool or can you send me an Excel file or a PDF of an Excel file, which is always my personal favorite, can you send me a PDF of an Excel file so that I can have this piece of evidence? I think that creates a lot of friction organizationally speaking. And so companies are looking, how do we reduce that friction while we have even more audit burdens happening? A lot of organizations are looking at automation as the solution for that, because the one thing you can't do is, um, (laughs) I guess you could choose to fail your audit, but I can't imagine that it's going to go very well. So that that move towards automation is a consistent theme throughout. Um, And then the other thing that we're seeing is that there are companies out there that are missing business deals because they cannot attest or cannot prove evidence that they have a given certification. And that could be something like, uh, maybe you've got SOC 2, but you don't have ISO, or maybe you've got SOC 2 and ISO, and now all of your supply chain is asking, hey, do y'all have FedRAMP, moderate? And this increasing focus on the business-to-business sales cycle is really driving additional um, spend both in terms of capital as well as investment of resources into companies picking up new long running certification regimes that they're going to have to maintain effectively. And then you go, okay, well, how are you going to do that at scale? If you're not automating it at that point, it's really setting people up for some unpleasant situations, I think.
0: So speaking, you've mentioned automation and uh, it really gets me thinking a little bit about how at the top of the discussion you talked about manual processes and how the survey results showed that uh, people are still in the throes of manual processes despite having introduced certain tools like GRC tools for automation purposes. Can you talk to us a little bit about what organizations can be doing for this last question?
1: Um, So I think it's a a, a a good question of how much you can automate and what will make sense to automate more so than anything else so if you have a control requirement that uh, you go evaluate how your developers are using github as part of your ci cd pipeline and that they're following the established processes right that is something that you can automate and then you can inspect and you can the advantage of doing some automation like that to go collect the evidence to see what your github polls look like or um, to see how the developers are otherwise using that system that's advantageous because it gives you real-time View into the compliance of how well your defined and agreed upon processes are working. And depending on the field and your regulatory burden, that naturally is, uh, you know, <laughs> you don't get a choice to opt out. But just automating the evidence collection, somebody still has to go read that. And I don't know about you, but like reading the outcomes of API calls, like you could give that to an intern, but they're not going to want to take up a job in cybersecurity after uh, like reading PDFs all day for something that has the word no or the word yes in it. And so I think that companies should look at how they can evaluate that testing and automate that testing as well for those things where it's simple, like you can think through it as like, hey, it happened in this time frame, or uh, maybe you've got a vulnerability and patch management cycle that says after a vulnerability is identified, Identified, and that's a vulnerability system that your patching system, which is a different system, has to go patch it and then somebody has to go test it. Again, you can collect all that evidence manually, but having people still read it, that job sucks. So instead of doing that, why not just automate that testing? And then you can start focusing time on the harder things which you can't actually automate. And those are the things that require human intuition. So um, for example, just ISO, I I spoke of that one a moment ago, uh, requires that you're showing a demonstrable commitment to cybersecurity, right? Um, that's not an automated test. That's somebody with knowledge of how the organization works is going to have to go through all of the papers and all of the signatures, all of the attestations and approvals that um, are then aligned and cross-referenced. Well, is the person who signed this in a position of authority to actually show this does demonstrate that organizational level of commitment? Uh, I think that that um, ability to spend Your time doing that provides longer term organizational benefits as those controls tend to be a little more static. You might update your policies on an annual basis. And I can guarantee you threat actors don't care what your security policy says. It's kind of in their nature, that's kind of their day job. Um, And so having real-time visibility into control effectiveness of of hard security controls, whether that's XDR or EDR, mdr whatever we're supposed to call it today um, or whether it's ensuring that your software developers are uh, using the appropriate levels of encryption all of those things that are hard tactical controls inspect those inspect them continuously and then remediate any issues before they get into production or if they make it to production remediate. having that visibility makes for a faster fix cycle than waiting for the auditor to roll up in another 364 days because they were just here yesterday and find out, oh, (laughs) we just introduced a bug, right? We just introduced a vulnerability or we're going to have a problem. We can't wait that long anymore.
0: Thank you so much, Kane. I really appreciate that. That's about all the time that we have for right now. Um, But I would encourage the listeners and the viewers to go and read that 2023 IT Compliance and Risk Benchmark Report. And I want to thank Kane Mcgladry from HyperProof again for joining us today with those great insights.
1: Thanks so much, Lisa. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you.